Uh, take your Bibles and, uh, and your worship guide with the outline there. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. We're nearing the end of this chapter, uh, this extended teaching discourse uh, of Jesus here in Matthew chapter 13, where he's giving parable after parable after parable. Today we're going to look at four very short parables, all in relatively quick succession. Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 52. Now, when I was a kid and I was fortunate enough to have Lucky Charms cereal for breakfast, which was not all the time, I was the kind of kid who followed the the mantra, the age-old wisdom of save the best for last. So I would eat all of those sort of dog food-like cereal bits first and and save all of the marshmallows for last uh, so that the last you know few bites of cereal would just be those delicious um, artificially manufactured marshmallows. And I would always eat them one kind. Of, I'd eat all the horseshoes first, and then all of the, the green hats. And the, not always in that order, but I would just always like to separate it, because that's how it is. Now, my children, um, they, they operate under a, a different mantra. Not save the best for last, but only the best. So we give them Lucky Charms, and they eat only the marshmallows, and they leave everything else behind. So uh, I'm tired of wasting money on cereal, so we don't give them Lucky Charms anymore. As we look... In Matthew chapter 13, at Jesus' parabolic discourse, his, his teaching on parables, his extended teaching period on parables, we find, I think in some ways, that Jesus has saved the best for last in his parables. He has saved the last four of these parables in quick succession to talk about the treasure of the kingdom the value, the worth of the kingdom of heaven. Now, several weeks ago, we defined the kingdom of heaven as the redemptive rule of God in Christ. That is God's saving plan to rule over the universe in every way uh, possible through his son, Jesus. And now in these four parables, Jesus tells us uh, about the treasure, the value, the worth of God's redemptive reign in Christ the King. In these parables, we'll find that the kingdom of heaven is a thing of infinite value and worth. It's a treasure greater than any other. We should be willing to, knowing what the treasure of the kingdom is, be willing to give up anything to attain it. We should be willing to praise God that he defines its worth and then to train ourselves to value the kingdom as we find it in all of God's word. Let's look this morning at the text of Scripture. Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 52. Follow along with me. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into, the, thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. So it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all of these things, Jesus says to his disciples? They say to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Four parables in quick succession that that I think Jesus is using to show us the value of the kingdom, the worth of the kingdom of heaven and and to help us to understand how we ought to respond to knowing those things. 
First of all, let's look at verses 44 through 46. There we see that the kingdom is a treasure worth everything. The kingdom is a treasure worth everything. Here in these verses, Jesus gives us two parables with essentially the same point. First, he gives us the parable of the hidden treasure, verse 44. Kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. Here's a picture of a man who, in his travels, happens upon a treasure that was hidden in a field. It would seem rather accidentally. Perhaps he's walking by and, and he, he sees a, 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 a piece of a, a chest or something held to, used to hold treasure, maybe that has been exposed by the wind or by the rain, having eroded the soil that covered it before. Regardless of how he finds it, the, what's important here is, I think, that word treasure. That word for treasure here likely means something like a treasure trove. The treasure that is found by this man is not a small thing. It's not just a coin hidden in the dirt. It's a large amount of treasure, so much so that he can't just pick it up and put it in his pocket and then move along his, uh, move, go along on his way. Also, he finds it in a field that belongs to somebody else. So not only is it small, not small enough for him to put in his pocket and walk away, it also belongs to another person. It's not rightfully his. And so then, for this man to safeguard his discovery, what does he do? In joy, he goes and sells everything that he has, everything that he owns, so that he can buy that field and be the rightful owner of that treasure that he found. Jesus says the kingdom is like that. It's like that treasure found in that field worth selling everything to buy. And then in verses 45 and 46, he tells us a parable about a priceless pearl. Here in this image, Jesus doesn't use a man walking along the road, but he refers to a a pearl merchant, someone who works in the market of pearls, who buys and sells pearls or other things uh, for a living. And this man is on a search. He's on a quest to find the pearl, the perfect pearl. And in his searching for this pearl, he finds it. And when he finds it, this pearl of great value, what does he do? He goes and just like the man in the parable of the hidden treasure sells all that he has that he might buy that pearl. There are a few things to notice, I think, in these parables. In the first parable, the man stumbles upon treasure. He's not looking for it. It seems to come upon it accidentally. He's just walking along his way and boom, there's the treasure. It's treasure of infinite worth and value, worth selling everything that he owns so that he can buy the field that the treasure is in. I think in this, there's something for us to note that that God does sometimes reveal his kingdom, does sometimes reveal the beauty of the gospel that is salvation and forgiveness of sins through jesus christ to some people who aren't really even looking for it you know this person maybe you were this person you weren't looking for god you weren't trying to find out how to be right with god you had maybe no desire for spiritual things whatsoever and then immediately just one moment somebody shares with you about jesus who he is what he's done the perfect life he lived that he died on the cross for your sins was raised from the dead first time ever hearing it and boom immediately you're going that is a thing that i must have that knowing god that way i cannot go another moment without knowing him that way Maybe that's been the story in your life, a dramatic sort of almost immediate conversion to knowing Jesus, to trusting Jesus when you weren't ever searching for him before. Sometimes God does that in people's lives. Sometimes he reveals his kingdom that way. But then in the second parable, we see another man, a merchant of pearls. And what is he doing? He's searching for fine pearls. He's looking for a pearl of great price, for a a pearl of great value. He finds the pearl. He doesn't stumble upon the pearl accidentally. He's looking for it intentionally. I think what we find here is that God sometimes 
reveals the kingdom to people who are searching for it. Are you here today because you don't know Jesus and you're looking for truth in your life? You're looking for for spiritual realities to anchor your life in. You know that there's something beyond your life and beyond yourself. You're just not sure what it is, and so you're exploring. Understand this today. If you are seeking to know God in truth, he will be good to reveal truth to you. This, This is the truth, and these are the spiritual realities upon which you ought to ground your life. That God loves you, that he has created you, that you might know him and love him and worship him. To be in a relationship with him forever. Now, you are, because you're searching for realities, you, spiritual realities to anchor your life, and you probably recognize that things in your life are maybe not quite as they ought to be. There's hurt, there's pain, there's suffering. You've lost people, broken relationships, financial troubles. The list goes on. You're looking for something to help you make sense out of all that brokenness in your life. The Bible tells us that brokenness exists in our lives and in the world because we've rebelled against God's good design for his creation. We have not sought to know him and love him and worship him. Instead, we've sought to know ourselves and love ourselves and worship ourselves. God is a good God and a just God, and he is right to judge us for our rebellion against his design. But he's also a loving God who, knowing what he has made us for, has seen fit to send his son Jesus, God in the flesh, to live a perfect life without sin, never rebelling against God's perfect design for your life and for mine. He lived that life perfectly, and then he died on a cross. Horrible, excruciating execution. Not because he deserved it. He didn't deserve it. He didn't deserve to die, because he'd never been unfaithful, never been uh, rebellious against God, but he did. And the Bible tells us that he died on the cross in our place. And there, hanging on that wooden beam, God poured out all of his wrath, all of his justice against sin and our rebellion on his son. He took the punishment for us. Paid the sentence so that anybody who might trust in Jesus, find themselves under the umbrella of of God's grace to us in Christ, might escape God's wrath and justice for sin, might have forgiveness of sins, and then might be able to be restored in their relationship to God, to know him, to love him, to worship him the way that we've been designed. Friend, if you're searching for truth today, that is truth worth basing your life upon. That is truth that never changes. That is truth that helps you to deal with the brokenness in your life, to see how God is using those things, working in your life through those things to bring you back into relationship with him. And in both cases, whether it's the man who's walking along and finds this treasure accidentally, or it's the merchant who's searching for this pearl, in either case, both men, in recognizing the value of the thing that they have found, sell everything that they have to acquire that treasure, this treasure that Jesus says represents the kingdom. In this we know that the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, God's redemptive rule in Christ is worth far more than any one person's collective wealth or collective worth. It is worth giving up everything to attain. There is nothing in this life that will ever compare in value or in worth to knowing God, to being in a relationship with God the way that you've been designed to know him. There's nothing that will compare. There's nothing that will come close. It is worth giving up everything, all of your expectations, all of your desires for your own life, that you might attain it. This is the point of these two parables. Because the kingdom of heaven is of inestimable value, value that cannot be estimated, cannot be numbered, When it's found, when you realize what the kingdom is, it is worth giving up everything in your life to obtain it if need be. In these parables, I think, are are two things that Jesus is 
calling us to do. First, to consider the cost of following Jesus. The kingdom is worth everything. It's worth giving, giving everything up to obtain. But in these parables, right, the man who finds a treasure in the field, he can't purchase the field if he doesn't have means to obtain it. If he still has all the stuff that he owns, he's got to get rid of everything that he owns to obtain something that he has found. Same thing with the pearl merchant. For him to purchase this pearl, he has to sell everything that he has, give up everything to obtain this one pearl. There is a cost to following Jesus. There's a cost to knowing him, to walking with him. And this is not a new thing for us in the Gospel of Matthew. You remember back in Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 22, there Jesus has a couple of different people that are following him, not part of his 12 disciples, but part of a larger group. One, a scribe, an expert in the Old Testament law, comes to Jesus and says, uh, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. And what's Jesus' response to him? Foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. That is to say, you want to follow me everywhere you go? Recognize you're going to be homeless and wandering for a while. The man goes away, not following Jesus. There's another man who's in that crowd that Jesus goes to, and he says, you, come, leave everything, come, follow me. The man says, well, uh, that, that sounds good, Jesus. I'll follow you, but first let me go bury my father. The understanding there is that the man's father isn't even dead yet. And what's Jesus' response? Yeah, I'll wait for you. Take care of that. No, he says, leave the dead to bury their own dead. You come follow me. There's a cost to following Jesus. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 and 39, Jesus says, I didn't come to bring, a so- uh, didn't come to bring peace, but I come to bring a sword. I come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother. The enemies of a man will be those of his own household. He says, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. That is to say, whoever does not deny his own life, take up his own, his own instrument of death and follow me, is not worthy to follow me. There's a cost to following Jesus. The kingdom is worth everything to obtain. But unless you give up everything, you cannot ever obtain it. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. In Hebrews chapter 11, the author of that book gives us this long list of, uh, of heroes of faith, people who in faith have trusted God. And then in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, he writes this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, that is, those who have gone in faith before us, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You want to follow Jesus? Be prepared. Be prepared to lay aside every weight, every sin which clings so so tightly. Everything that encumbers you, everything that you're holding on to in this life that is not Christ, be prepared to give it up to follow him faithfully. faithfully. So you may be asking yourself this question. The the men in these two parables go and they sell everything that they have to obtain this treasure. Does this mean that I have to go and sell all my stuff so that I can follow Jesus? For some of you, yes. For some of you, yes. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 21, parallel passage there in Luke chapter 18, verse 22, Jesus comes upon a rich young man. And the rich young man says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, go sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. What does a man do? 
He goes away sad. He goes away brokenhearted because he had much. His heart was tied to the stuff that he had. And there was no way that he could ever follow Jesus because he was so tightly tied to the things that he had, to his wealth, to his material possessions. He couldn't give those up to follow Jesus. For some of you today, you're going to have to literally give up things in your life, things that you own, the house, the dream house that you built, the the perfect car that's sitting in your garage because your heart is tied to those things. You may have to give those things up to follow Jesus. So you don't have that constant temptation to to have your attention distracted from him. My guess, though, is for most of you, you don't have to sell all your stuff and give it away in order to follow Jesus. For most people, these parables and the, the point of giving up everything to follow Jesus means just simply giving up the stuff that we hold on to spiritually. Sometimes we don't have problems with material possessions, but we have problems with spiritual things things that we think about ourselves, things that we assume about ourselves, that we need to give up. In most of our lives, including my own, this is going to be pride. You have to give up pride and give up being the the sole determiner of your life. You need to quit chasing your dreams. Put those aside and recognize that they are not God's dreams for you. You might have to give up those things. Matthew chapter 5, verse 2. As Jesus is beginning the Sermon on the Mount, he begins it this way. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? Happy are those, blessed are those, joyous are those who recognize they are poor in spirit. That in their spirit they have nothing to offer a holy and perfect God. They recognize their poverty before God. That they, There's nothing that they can do to please him on their own. There's nothing that they can do to earn his grace. And recognizing their spiritual bankruptcy, they come to God trusting solely in him and what he can provide. Jesus says, blessed are they who are poor in spirit because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Friends, if you're not poor in spirit, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. If you think that you've got stuff that God likes in you because it's good stuff that you do, you're missing the point. You're not poor in spirit. Church, to enter the kingdom, you must have nothing holding you back. You must have nothing holding you back. The call to enter the kingdom of heaven is a call to see how wonderfully and infinitely valuable is God's redemption, is his salvation and Christ's lordship in your life, seeing its value and wanting nothing more than to be saved and to have Christ as king. That's how you enter the kingdom, wanting nothing else, only Jesus. Is it any wonder then that wealthy people have such a hard time accepting and believing the gospel? I went to seminary in a county in California that is the second most wealthy county in the United States per capita. I was not counted among that number. (laughs) But we had neighbors and we had friends and people that we knew there in Marin County who were loaded. I mean, loaded. Saw no need for Christ in their life whatsoever. They're open to spiritual things, sure. But you, you confront them or, or you bring to them the imperative to trust Christ and him only to be saved. And they say, what do I need that for? Right? My, my job pays me, you know, quarter million dollars a year. I can afford this million and a half dollar house. I've got a Land Rover in the garage and a Corvette in the other one. What do I need from God? What can he give me? I've got everything I need. I'm not giving this up. Forget it. Is it any wonder that it's so hard for wealthy people to trust the gospel, to trust Christ? 
Yet for the poor person, friends, it's equally difficult to accept the kingdom this way. Poor people, people without means, are just as prone to pride and greed and selfishness and and self-preservation as rich people are. Each of us has things we must throw off and get rid of so that we can hold tightly to Christ as king. So thinking through these parables this week and the images that they portray... I thought of these strongman competitions on ESPN. I used to watch these big, huge, burly dudes. They're just, they're doing crazy stuff. They're throwing like giant rocks over walls and that's entertaining. Uh, But they would do things like hold on to the bumpers of two trucks that are facing the opposite direction and those two trucks would drive away and they just hold on as long as they can, you know, and then whenever they, and it's kind of a timed thing. Whenever you let go, you know, that's that's your score, is your your time is your score. Um, As I'm thinking through this parable of giving up everything to follow Christ, I have in my mind this image of we sinful people who who we want salvation we want the kingdom we want to know god we want to be right with him but we also want our stuff and we're and we're holding on right as tightly as we can to those two things that are moving in in total opposite directions friends at the end of that competition you don't get a score you get your arms ripped from your body Spiritually, that's what happens. You can't hold on to the kingdom. You can't know Christ. You can't trust him and have all your stuff. You can't have your cake and eat it too. What do you want more? Because that's what, that's what you'll hold on to when push comes to shove. When it gets too hard to hold on to one or the other, you'll, you'll let go of one and hold to the other. When life gets really hard, you'll either let go of Christ and hold on to your junk or you'll hold on to Christ and you'll, you'll let him decide what to do with everything else. Where are you today? Are you holding on to Christ? Are you holding on to your stuff? Or are you somewhere here in the middle trying to do both? Let me tell you, it doesn't end well for you that way. To enter the kingdom, you must have nothing holding you back. Hold tightly to Christ. Hold tightly to the kingdom. Give up everything that you might gain something far better than anything you can earn in this life. Secondly, in verses 47 through 50, we see the value of the kingdom comes from its king. The value of the kingdom is rooted in its king. Here we have this parable of the, of the net that's thrown into the sea, a parable of this dragnet. This parable likely would have resonated well with many of the disciples. At least a third of them were fishermen themselves by trade. The net that Jesus speaks of here is a dragnet. It's a net that has floats on the top of it and weights on the bottom. It's thrown over the side of a ship. And then men on shore drag that net back in. If you've ever seen the movie Forrest Gump and he's out on his shrimp boat uh, called the Jenny and he's a shrimp boat captain, you know the picture of a dragnet. He brings this giant net right full of shrimp onto the boat and then he opens it up and what falls out? A whole bunch of shrimp but also a whole bunch of junk. Okay, You got a lot of shrimp but you also got toilet seats and license plates and Grateful Dead t-shirts. So what does a fisherman do with his haul? Well, he sorts it. The good stuff he puts in containers, Jesus says. The bad stuff he throws away. What's the point of this kingdom? Well, graciously, Jesus gives us the point. He says in verse 49, So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The point of this kingdom is this, that the kingdom of heaven will consummate. It will come to its conclusion at the end of the age, at the end of time, with angels welcoming into heaven, into the kingdom, those who are righteous by faith and relegating the wicked, sending the wicked, separating them from the, from, from the righteous to eternal punishment in a place called hell. 
This parable in many ways has the same point as that of the parable of the wheat and the weeds that we saw just a few weeks ago. Almost exact same language used in in explaining what the parable means. The catch of fish in the parable of the dragnet is God's catch of fish. The same as the harvest at the end of the parable of the wheat and the weeds is God's harvest. It's his collection of bringing everything in at the right time. And at the end of time, God will uh, send his angels, direct his angels to sort the righteous from the unrighteous. Those who are righteous will go to be with God. They will enter into the, the eternal kingdom of heaven. The unrighteous will not. The unrighteous, those who do not know God, those who are not right with God through faith in Christ, will be separated from God forever in a place of unimaginable torment, a place called hell. These are spiritual realities worth knowing and understanding. Heaven and hell are real places. And what you do with Christ in this life affects, impacts your eternal destiny. But see in this parable that because the kingdom is God's, because the catch of fish is his, because the harvest of wheat and and of weeds at the harvest time in the previous parable, because it belongs to God, he's the one that defines what is worthy to enter his kingdom. He's the one who who defines what it is to be a part of the kingdom. He's the one who gives instructions for sorting. Know this today. Worth, in God's eyes, is not based in who you are or what you do. Let me be clear here. Every single person on the face of planet Earth, regardless whether you're a man or a woman, an adult or a child, regardless of your race, your ethnicity, your nationality, you are worthy of dignity and respect as a human being because you are made in the image of God. Okay? You, we have inherent worth and value, but our kingdom worth is not defined by who we are as we are created. Our kingdom worth is defined by our righteousness, by who we know. Our kingdom worth is defined by the character of the king. The king is righteous. He is perfect. And so to be a citizen of his kingdom, you have to be righteous. You have to be perfect yourself. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, again in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, these experts in the Jewish law, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That is to say, it is impossible for you to be more righteous than these righteous people to enter into the kingdom of heaven. To enter into the kingdom, to be saved, to know God, you've got to have someone else make your unholiness into holiness. To make your unrighteousness into righteousness. To make your sin, your dirty, stinky, smelly, rotten sin into beauty and glory. There's no way for you to do it on your own. God has done it for you, though. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul says this. He, that is God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin. He's perfect, sinless, no sin in this man. He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, to punish sin in his own son, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. You can't turn your unrighteousness into holiness. You can't be right with God on your own. You've got to have someone else fix the problem for you. Praise God, he's fixed the problem for you. The one who has a case against us for our rebellion against him is the one who's made a way for our sins to be forgiven. He sent his, and not because he just turned a blind eye to sin. No, he still punished sin, but he punished sin in and on his perfect son, Jesus, who had no sin. So that we who are sin, who are sinful, can become the righteousness of God. Can be right with the God who made us. Friend, today know this, that to enter the kingdom, you must respond to Christ in faith. 
You must respond to Christ in faith. The only way to be made holy, the only way to be made righteous, the only way to be reconciled to your creator is through trusting Jesus. You, friend, I, we don't get to decide what God's kingdom is and who gets to go into it. That's his kingdom. He decides. Do not this morning deceive yourself to think that you are a part of the kingdom of God or that you may enter the kingdom of God just because you're gathered with some kingdom people in a kingdom setting. Don't think today that your rear end in this cushy purple seat is what makes you right with God. Because you're in a church hearing gospel preaching surrounded by other Christians. Don't trust your presence in this room today for your salvation. Instead, trust not the seat you sit in, not the building that you attend every Sunday. Trust the Savior whose name we proclaim. Trust the man who gave all that we might receive the righteousness of God. The dragnet of the parable Brings in all sorts of people, good and bad, but only the righteous enter the kingdom. Remember what Jesus himself said in Matthew seven twenty one: Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven, he will enter. And what is the will of God? The will of God is what we read in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, that all should come to repentance, that all should see their sin for how bad it is, turn from it and in faith turn to Jesus. God's desire for you, friend, and the way that you come to be a part of the kingdom is by turning away from your rebellion against God. Turning away from your avoidance of God and turning to embrace in faith and in trust his son, Jesus, who died for you and who was raised again. That's too simple, you say. It's too easy. If God is as good as you seem to say he is, and my sin really does make me so unrighteous, my sin really makes me as bad as you're telling me this morning, Stephen, there's got to be something more to being saved than just trusting Jesus. Surely I've got to do something. If I did something to get myself in this mess, I've got to do something to get myself out of this mess. Certainly this is the thought of many of the world's various religions today. They say, For you to be saved, for you to be liberated, for you to be right with God, you have to follow certain laws perfectly. You've got to observe particular sacraments. You've got to follow a path of right conduct and belief in all areas of your life. Some of the world's religions even say that you just have to hope that God, in your case, will be merciful. There's no way to know whether you'll be saved or not. You're just, everything is at the mercy of God. Maybe I will, maybe I won't. There's no assurance of one way or the other, so I just hope God's good to me. Friends, the Bible plainly states the opposite. The Bible plainly states that there is a clearer, surer, simpler way to be saved. In sorrow for your sin, turn away from it. Trust Jesus. Be sorry for your sin. Trust in Jesus. This clear and simple way to salvation is all the more certain for you. There's no doubt in this, kind of, in this way to being right with God. There's no wondering whether you are right with God. Because it's not anything that you did. You're saying, I'm giving up sin so that I can follow Jesus. Because he died for me. I'm hoping that he'll help me to walk in repentance. To walk continually. Live a way that's not sinful the way it was before. Don't doubt or fear as to whether you'll be in the kingdom on the day of judgment. Don't doubt or fear or wonder whether you'll be separated from the righteous and sent into a place of eternal torment. Trust Jesus today. Follow Jesus today. And in doing so, remove all doubt of your eternal destination. Enter God's kingdom his way. 
He defines what is worthy, and he's made a way for you to be righteous. Third and finally, in verses 51 and 52, we see that kingdom promises are treasures to be cherished. Kingdom promises are treasures to be cherished. Here in verse 51, Jesus asked the disciples, have you understood all these things? They say to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven, it's like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. This question in verse 51, have you understood these things? And the disciples' response, yes, is a marked shift from uh, Matthew chapter 13, verse 10, where there, after Jesus gives a parable, the disciples come to him and say, why do you speak to them in parables? What's the point of this? Explain it to us. They're not just now at the end of this teaching time on parables. They're not just now seeing a pattern in what Jesus is doing. They're not just better understanding the analogies that Jesus is making about the kingdom in the parables, but they're, they're beginning to have eyes that see spiritual realities and ears that hear and hearts that understand what God is saying to them through Christ. Remember Matthew chapter 13, verses 14 and 15? Jesus gives the reason as to why he speaks in parables, because they both reveal and conceal kingdom truths. They reveal kingdom truths to people who want to know them, and they conceal kingdom truths from those who are not seeking God, who want nothing to do with him. There he says, and he, uh, Jesus quotes the prophet Isaiah. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled in that set, uh, fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You'll see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and I would turn and heal them. Jesus says, this is why I tell parables, so that people who want to know God, who are seeking after him, might understand him better, and so that those who are not seeking God might hear the parables, be confused by them, and not want God after all. That comes from Isaiah chapter 6. If you have your Bibles, turn to Isaiah chapter 32. Here in Isaiah chapter 32, after 31 chapters of, of God through the prophet Isaiah pronouncing woe and, um, and, and destruction for the people of Israel because they've been disobedient to God, they've worshipped idols, they've neglected the poor and the orphan among them. And he begins to give some promises. In Isaiah 32, God gives a promise of a king who will come, who will reign in righteousness. And look what happens when this king comes. Isaiah 32, verses 1 through 4. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule in justice. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like, storm from, like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. Catch this in verses 3 and 4. Then the eyes of those who see will not be closed. And the ears of those who hear will give attention. The heart of the hasty will understand and know. And the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak distinctly. Why does Jesus teach in parables? Because those who think they see are really blind. And those who think they hear are really deaf. And those who think they know it all don't understand anything. But what happens in Isaiah 32 when the king comes? When the king who reigns in righteousness, what happens? The eyes of people are opened. Their ears are opened to understand. Their hearts want to know God. And what happens at the end of Jesus' parable discourse? The disciples get it. They get it. Why? Because the king who reigns in righteousness, who opens the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf and softens the hard-heartedness of sinful people has come and he is reigning and he's changing the lives of his disciples. Why do they understand these things? Because the king has come and because the king is teaching them. 
I just saw Isaiah 32 this morning. As I didn't see it all week long. I'm preparing for this sermon. And I didn't see Isaiah 32 until this morning. Not a commentary I looked at. None of it. Just a wonderful blessing of God to me in my life this morning as I'm just reading Isaiah. Amen. And Lord, I pray it's a blessing to you as well. So then he says, right, he asks the disciples, have you understood? They say yes, implying that the king is doing what the promised king of righteousness in Isaiah 32 will do. And then he gives them a parable to describe their understanding. He gives this parable of this kingdom scribe. Scribe who's trained for the kingdom. It's like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Here, Jesus gives a different kind of analogy. Analogy of a scribe, of this religious professional, this religious expert, a, a shift away from the manual labor of the fisherman in the parable just before, or away from the, the, the sort of marketplace imagery that he uses in the case of the, the man who's looking for the pearl of great price. Here we need to understand who scribes were and what they did. Scribes in Jesus' day were expert teachers of the Old Testament law and the scriptures. They knew the Old Testament way better than anybody else could ever know the Old Testament, front to back, and they had all kinds of interpretations about it. A kingdom scribe, Jesus says, is a scribe then who is an expert teacher of the scriptures. He's not undoing scribal imagery and what a scribe does. A scribe, even trained for the kingdom, is one who's an expert in the scriptures, who knows the scriptures of God, but only as they relate to and reveal kingdom truths. They're experts in God's word as, as, as God's word reveals the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, God's choice to redeem and save people through his son, Jesus. Jesus says this scribe is like a master of a house who takes full inventory of all of his treasure. The image here is of a man who in, in receiving, who, who probably has much in his storehouse, uh, in his home, much treasure, who comes across something new to add to his treasury. And in doing so, he takes out all of his old stuff as well. And he takes a full inventory of everything that he's had from the moment he began collecting things or, or getting a, a treasure store. And the new things he brings in to join with the old. And he takes full inventory and enjoys all of them. These new and old treasures, I think, are a very clear reference to Jesus, uh, or a very clear reference by Jesus to old revelation from God and new revelation from God. That is the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament as we know it. He's saying that is old treasure. It's good old treasure. And the stuff I'm giving you, this is new treasure to add to your storehouse. The scribe of the kingdom, the one who knows, who's looking for the kingdom, is like a man who, who values all of his treasure, whether it's new or whether it's old. The kingdom scribe recognizes that Jesus is giving divine revelation on the same level as the Old Testament. The kingdom scribe listens to it. He assesses it. He brings it into his spiritual treasury among the word of God that he has already received and appreciates it for what it is. Kingdom treasures or kingdom promises are treasures to be cherished. And the Old Testament is full of kingdom treasures. The New Testament is full of kingdom treasures. And so then we who call ourselves citizens of the kingdom, Christians, those who are walking with Christ, following Christ, we do well to work hard to love the word of God as citizens of his kingdom. The Bible is God's perfect way of speaking to us to show us who he is, what he is like, to show us who we really are and what we really need. This word, God's word, centers on the God-man, the Son of God the Father, Jesus. Everything in the Old Testament is preparing us for and pointing us to Jesus. And everything in the New Testament is either showing us Jesus clearly or pointing us back to him, reminding us of who he is and what he's done. 
Reminding us of the promise of salvation that God has fulfilled in Jesus. Christian, love your Bible. Not because it's a sort of sacrosanct relic that sits on your coffee table. Not because it's a really pretty coaster. Or because you really like that that when Jesus talks, the letters are in red. Don't love it for the thing that it is in your home. Love it because it is the very word of God breathed by the Holy Spirit into the hearts, heads, and hands of his chosen servants to write it. This is God speaking to you. It is living and active, and it is a treasure trove of truth and promise and hope for you. Christian, my hope for us is that we would not merely read our Bibles out of reverence for the things that they are, but that we we would read them to hear from the God who wrote it. That we would read it to understand his promise of salvation more fully each time we encounter it. That we would read it to be changed by it. This has been particularly true in my own experience, just treasuring God's word. My own experience over the last year in the book of Psalms. If you're struggling with anything, let me put that differently. If you're a human being, you do well to read the book of Psalms. If if you're struggling with hurt, with pain, or with knowing what to pray, or even how to rejoice rightly, read the Psalms. It will fix all of that for you. Last fall, um, and this began to happen in my own life, about uh, last last fall, uh, September, October. Y'all may remember at that time... um, uh, uh, a, a girl that, uh, that had served in our church as a children's intern a couple of summers ago, Esther Jankerson, uh, passed away tragically in a, just a freak car accident um, in, in Kansas. Uh, Esther spent the summer that she was our children's intern a lot of time uh, with my wife and with me, with our girls. She, although she was like 20 years old, uh, became like a fourth daughter to us and we're just really close to her. And so we got news that she had died in this car accident. And, and my wife, Nikki, was just crushed just crushed. I was hurting too. I mean, I, you know, I knew Esther. I, I loved her too, cared for her, but, but not the way that, not, not in terms of the closest that my wife had with her. Because my wife was hurting, I was hurting, and we were just, our house was just a hot mess. We just didn't know what to do with ourselves. Here I am, I, a pastor, asking God, why her? Why Esther? What are you doing here, God? Don't know what to do. Come across Psalm 42. Verse 5, Psalmist says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? That's just a question I'm asking myself in light of Esther's death. God, why so much pain for us? I don't even know how to pray right now, God. Second half of Psalm 42, verse 5, Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. You want to... God's word is just it's full of this. It is full of these treasures. And, and the reason that the Psalms are so helpful to you in every area of your life, the reason that, that the Psalms are a treasure of God to be cherished is because they are his word. He wrote exactly in Psalm 42 what I and my wife needed last fall. God's provision for me, for my family, written 3,000 years ago. That's a good God. Friend, don't miss out on these treasures in God's word. Read his word regularly. Read his word daily. Read his word not to tick a box on a to-do list each day, but to, to encounter the God of the universe who sent his son to save you.
this is a this is a treasure trove of of things worth valuing and and holding uh, high in regard for their worth for all time. You will never explore the full depths of the treasure of God's word in this life. So don't stop digging. As we close this section of Matthew's gospel this morning, this extended section of parable teaching from Jesus, I want us to take a look back to where we began several weeks ago. When we began Matthew chapter 13, we asked this question, what are the parables for? What do they do? And there we saw from this very chapter that the parables help those who are seeking the kingdom truths to see them more clearly. But for those who are not truly interested in the kingdom, the parables will only serve to confuse and further blind us. Jesus closes his teaching, these parables, with a question to his disciples. Have you understood all of these things? I would pose the same question to us today. Have we understood, have you understood the spiritual realities and truths about redemption that the parables are intending to teach? Have you understood the value of the kingdom of heaven? Have you understood that it's worth giving up everything to to follow to find yourself in, that Christ is worth setting everything aside that you might walk with him. Have you understood that? Over the last several weeks, have you been blessed to better see and to hear and understand what God is doing in Christ? Have your eyes been opened? Have your ears been unstopped? Has your heart been softened? In seeing and hearing and understanding the kingdom more clearly, have you been moved to greater love of Christ the King and a greater desire to see His kingdom come in your life and in the lives of, of, of those that you know? Do you want to see Christ reign in you? Do you want to see Him reign in the lives of lost friends and family members, coworkers, fellow students? Do you want that? If you know Christ and you've understood the kingdom, you ought to. Jesus, the master teacher in Matthew 13, extends to us knowledge of God's plan for salvation and the reward for those who believe in Christ. That we, he gives us knowledge of those things that we ought to treasure, that we ought to revel in. Like Scrooge McDuck in his big pool of money, we ought to just want to dive right in and do backstroke through God's word and the promises of the kingdom and in our life and prayer with Christ. We got to want those things more than anything else. Christian, do you treasure God's word more deeply, more profoundly as a result of having heard Jesus, the master teacher, teach through these parables? If so, praise God. Glorify him in your life. Share those kingdom truths with those who need to hear it. If not, and you're being convicted of that today, know today that you may not be walking with Christ. If you've never trusted Jesus, today is the day to do it. See your need for the king. See your need for Christ. And come to him today, giving up everything that you might follow him in obedience. Let's pray.